You're listening to a podcast from the 2012 Norfolk and Norwich Festival, brought to you by Writer Centre Norwich. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the fourth of the Words and Ideas events in this year's Norfolk and Norwich Festival. So far, we have uh, heard from Alain de Botton, it's not easy to say, all the way through the night. Uh, he told us effectively how to be good without God. And then on Saturday, we live streamed a really intense 12 hour human rights tribunal from Stockholm that focused on freedom of expression and the rights of writers, thinkers, and artists to travel around the world. We also hosted a day of activities here in the garden of players and in the playroom of drama uh, focusing on human rights, and we were just really overwhelmed by the number of people that came through the door of the course of uh, long 12 hours. Saturday also saw a tremendous three-part performance of co-commission of North Norwich Festival with the local writers George Surtees and Andy MacDonald singing the city where musicians and singers sang dawn, moon and dusk and celebrated the built environment, the history and the architecture of our city. Tonight, the fourth event is another change of direction. This time we're looking at politics and protest. And we brought two outstanding writers to talk about their writing and also to talk about art and protest in general. Last week, uh, as I think I mentioned to those of you who were here on Friday, we found out that Norwich had been declared as England's first UNESCO city of literature. It was fantastic news for us. Um, one of the many themes that came out of the research on Norwich was this long history we have of being a home for dissenting, troublesome, awkward, unwindable, difficult writers and thinkers. We've got a really long history of people who provoked, disagreed, protested, and harried their opponents over a sometimes month and year long period. I don't know if you know Harriet Martin, but she was one of these uh, amazing thinkers. She was a correspondent of both Dickens and Darwin, and she made her, her views of their inadequacies very plain until at one point Darwin actually wrote to his sister and said, How fortunate it is that this Martin and is so very plain. Otherwise, I would be frightened. <laughs> she is a wonderful woman. Um, this kind of writer, uh, this thinker, of, uh, as a protester, as a, as a grit in the oyster, is something that comes back again and again in Norwich. Tonight, we've got two writers whose work, both directly and directly, frequently and brilliantly encompasses protest, revolt, and dissent. I don't know if you read at the weekend, but we are now, if you attend the London Olympics, you will possibly be subject to something called the LRAD, a long-range acoustic device. Uh, this is going to be used to send verbal warnings over a long distance or emit a beam of pain-inducing tones if you do something that the organisers do not like. The Ministry of Defence describes its use as being for informing large crowds. It also has clear uses, however, in dispersing intimidating crowds. The manufacturer, helpfully, on the BBC website, described it as uh, primarily a weapon, and saying, <laughs> however, that the MOD has assured them it would only be used primarily in the loud failure mode, which is nice. <laughs> uh, so before your ears bleed, you will be told how to heal on them. Uh, on the very same day as this was announced, thousands of protesters around the world gathered in Moscow, in Los Angeles, in Berlin, in Barcelona, in Madrid to protest about the ongoing banking scandals. The, fund, the funders, the hedge funds, the traders. There were thousands of people in protests all around the world. In London, 40 people were arrested out of the many, many hundreds that were there. And a good portion of them were all were photographed, I don't know if you saw this also, wearing masks. And that mask, of course, was that of Guy Fawkes. 
What links the two writers we have this evening um, that are, is the fact that they're both connected uh, to protest, both the Olympics and more generally. They're here tonight to talk about their own writing and what we might do in the face of some of the pressures of this kind of capitalist, overloaded corporate world. The evening will be very simple. We'll have two readings, firstly by Ian, then by Alan. Then I'll ask them a couple of short questions to set the context for the rest of the evening. We're going to then have a break, and you'll be able to browse the books that the lovely book hive have provided us with, and also to have a drink. Then we'll come back, we'll ask more questions, and then it'll be your turn. Uh, the floor will be open, and we'll have a discussion until the end of the evening. Ian Sinclair is a poet and filmmaker and novelist. He's prolific and he's been at the heart of England's Britain's literary heritage and literary scene for many years. Lights Out for the Territory, London Orbital, The Edge of the Orison, perhaps three of the best known works of his, of his non-fiction works. Um, Ghost Mill, his current book, his new book, is part memoir, part concerted attack on the notion of the grand projects, the pinnacle of which being Olympic Games, part description of his works, part description of the act of hanging around, as he calls it, which is not acting, but remembering. <coughs> Um, the lovely Rob McFarlane described the book as documentary writing as opposition, literature as resistance, or as Sinclair more calmly puts it, an example of memoir operating as an element within a larger social moment. I hope that Ian won't mind me quoting Rob McFarlane further when asked to describe Ian Sinclair. He said, How best to describe Sinclair? East London's recording angel, Hackney's Peeps, a literary mudlarker and tip picker, a travelodge tramp, his phrase, a middle class dropout with a gift for bullshit, again, his phrase, a toxicologist of the 21st century landscape, a historian of countercultures and occulted pasts, an intemperate warning, compulsively collecting and compacting the city's textual waste, a psychogeographer, a term from which Sinclair has been running away ever since he helped launch into the mainstream. He really is all of these and more, and I'm delighted to welcome you and St. Clair to this evening. Well, just one um, note of housekeeping before we get into it, and that is that as you go out of the door, you'll be able to pick up your Olympic ASBOs. <laughs> if anyone that's listened to me is uh, then not allowed to come within 50 miles of the lower league band. <laughs> that's a small price to pay, you'll get lots of Alan Moore as well. <laughs> you'll be allowed into Northampton, where the Olympics have kept going away. <laughs> the only grand project is everlasting, which is St Andrew's Hospital, a fantastic asylum which saw John Clare and Lucia Joyce and numerous others, including Dusty Springfield, and where Alan got married, a great, a great spot on the English landscape. Another great spot on the English landscape, coming here on the train from London today, it struck me more forcibly than when I've walked up to it recently, which is the uh, Anish Kapoor, largest steel sculpture in Britain. That was the whole point of it, is this kind of Ozymandias thing to be a little bit bigger than the Angel of the North. And it looked alarmingly like um, somebody trying to create a funfair helter-skelter in the last stages of Parkinson's disease. <laughs> Snakes wriggled around this East German viewing platform. But, but what, what struck me as the irony in all this was that when, when the development of this land began, the first thing they did was to take away the thing that looks nearest to this, which was even bigger, which were the pylons. There were a series of wonderful electrical pylons coming across the whole Lee, Lee Valley. And to cosmeticize the landscape, they were removed at millions of pounds. 
You then spend millions of pounds more to create something that looks like one of them in a thunderstorm, and you paint it red. This is the kind of strange corruption and madness of language that really begins to press on you. There's a kind of mendacity. The, the, the whole aspect of the thing has been described, and you'll hear it repeated time and again from politicians and promoters, is that the, the area of Stratford and Hackney and the Lower Lee Valley that's been taken up for this grand project, there was nothing there. This is what they say. There was nothing there. It was a wasteland. Well, when the blue fences first went up, I was walking around there, and what I found was that hung like bats all the way along the fence were these strange books. Enormous, enormous books, bigger than telephone directories. And what they are, these are the compulsory purchase orders. These are the things, there was nothing there. There are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of names in here. And just, just briefly to give you a flavour of it, what, what has to go? All interests in this 234,381 square metres of park, known as the Lower Lee Valley Regional Park, comprising pavilions, buildings, car parks, areas of hard standing, campsites, cycle track, known as the Eastway Cycle, grassed areas, wooded areas, wastelands, sheds, allotment gardens, roads, tracks, subways, footbridges, the ditch known as Henneker's Ditch, ponds, the banks of the river known as the Channelsea River, the bed and bank of the river known as the River Lee, electricity pylons, public road, embankments, cycle routes, all of it owned and now owned by the acquiring authorities. Housing estates known as Crabtree, Bamford, Brook, Cooper, Daly, Holt, Howarth, Smithies, Taylor, Tweeddale, community centres, amenity areas, access ways, public roads and the footpaths and verges known as Clay's Lane. And then the names begin and they go on forever. Well, that's, that's tragic and sad. And um, the only building, the only person surviving there was an, an old uh, Italian father <coughs> called Giuseppe in Stratford, who'd been there 30 years, and, and said that uh, all of his customers had vanished, that once upon a time they were in business. And this is all wiped out into this strange, now militarized enclosure. I, I took um, an American writer there the other day to look at Joseph Bazalgette's uh, sewage pumping station which was a wonderful uh, Victorian Gothic edifice created to disguise the fact of this wonderful machinery inside. And now it's been enclosed by two layers of razor wire, very high, surveillance cameras on all sides, and a big concrete parade ground where once there'd been flower beds in front of it. This is around a Victorian sewage pumping station. And I said, what, what are they trying to keep out? And he said, no, 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 you, you've got it all wrong. You're not keeping anything out. That's what they're going to keep in. This is your Guantanamo. I was, a, I was once upon a time an American Marine, and I've recognized this is completely a militarized landscape. What's happened is that you take away the original names, all those things I was reading out, and you give them numbers and grid references and new names. You secure your center. You, you set up your prison enclosure. You start putting helicopters and drones overhead, which we've got. 
Um, you've now got snipers in helicopters ready to shoot down anything that moves. And uh, you're putting surface-to-air missiles on top of tower blocks. This is, this is a, just so bizarre, it's off the map. But the, the more alarming thing of it all is that this was land that did need to be remediated in lots of ways. And the term wasteland, conjuring up that image out of modernism, of Eliot, goes back to his statement in, in the poem, The Wasteland, I will show you fear in a handful of dust, because the dust that comes off this site is unbelievable. And that's what I would just like to read a little bit about. As Ian Griffiths revealed in an article in The Guardian, documents obtained under the Freedom of Information rules reveal that contrary to government guidelines, waste from thorium and radium have been mixed with low-level waste and buried in a so-called disposal cell, a cell which was placed 500 metres to the north of the Olympic Stadium. You could not nominate in all of London more challenging ground for a landscape blitz, a ticking clock assault, on the devastated residue of industrial history. Insecticide and fertilizer works, paint factories, distillers of gin, gas mantle manufacturers, bone grinders, importers of fish marsh, seething dunes of radiant maggots, waste, dumped, buried, distributed, disturbed, decayed, putrefaction, tire mounds, the crunched metal and glass of innumerable breakers' yards hidden behind convolvulus draped fences under the flag of St. George, shirtless men smashing white goods with hammers, and the dust, the dust, the hot cinders, the warehouses and bundles of rags and dumped paper, the petrol reek, the black ash. This was where London University carried out experiments with a now decommissioned nuclear reactor, an area that was so far off the official map so hidden within a nexus of dark waterways that it functioned as a dumping ground of choice for what Bill Parry Davis referred to as uncontrolled deposits of radioactive thorium. In the Lee Bank Square estate, where residents were concerned about dust from the Olympic site, as a recognised pathway to contamination, Parry Davis said, is a person inhaling radioactive dust particles, and thorium is particularly hazardous. On the estate, as the summer barbecue season opened, families found themselves literally eating a relish of airborne dust, a mega-chilly bite on their steaks and sausages. When their worries were published on a website, the ODA threatened the Lee Bank whistleblower with legal proceedings and sent in a dust-sweeping vehicle to patrol the avenues. Rumours were rife. I was told that the only consequence of the remediating exercise was to spread low-level activity across the entire landscape of the Olympic enclosure, the divided fiefdoms of competing contractors. Toxic soil removed from the stadium was stored alongside bundles of Japanese knotweed, suggesting delirious quatermass mutations, with vegetal triffid creatures slouching towards <coughs> Westfield to be born. Really, the, the truth of it is, this is Westfield, this kind of ultimate retail, super-mild, super-cathedral of commerce, is, is what it's all about. And the Olympic Stadium and all that is just a kind of small satellite attached to the shopping mall. You can't actually get access to the stadium without passing through the Westfield Mall as you come up out of the station in Stratford. And the first thing you pass is a gigantic casino 
which is what they wanted to do with the Millennium Dome and were never allowed to do. But this time it's been waved through. And in fact, this Mao is so enormous and so labyrinthine that they're now having their own mini marathons. I saw a little notice up saying you can, put, you can collect your numbers to sign up for this weekend's marathon, which will be run around the shopping mall. <laughs> Forget the stage, this is, this is kind of small beer, and we don't want to know about that. But talking, um, saying very much what I'm saying now, uh, by invitation uh, for a TV crew within Westfield, I was thrown out of the premises. This is a BBC. You know, you weren't allowed to make these observations that the PR ran in. And this is a kind of controlled environment that Alan obviously has touched on long ago in B for Vendetta. This, this sort of visionary sense of a particular new kind of creeping surveillance society where you can hack into mainframe computers and begin to control the world. But the, the level of uh, control is getting alarming. The level of mendacity, the level of loss of language, that, that is what was really frightening. Um, and I found this recently on Lake Marshes, where people wearing V for Vendetta masks, but mostly just local people who, who had been promised that this last bit of marshland would not be touched, suddenly found it was being tarmacked over for a practice court and began to protest. The person who provided that information about the thorium, who commissioned a, a report, this guy called Mike Wells, was, was arrested. Um, for, for objecting to this, this process and was jailed, you know, he, he's gone for eight, eight days, he was in prison, he wasn't allowed to get bail because he was held to be a person with no fixed address because he lived on a narrowboat. Um, and the narrowboats are themselves being cosmetically swept away from the territory while they've commissioned cutouts of narrowboats to show that it's still a picturesque <laughs> It is weird, but I'll finish with the weirdest thing that happened to me, which was, uh, first I was banned from Westfield, then secondly I wasn't allowed to go into St Anne's Limehouse or Hawksmoor Church just for a very ancient crime of writing about ley lines. So when I wanted to do uh, an interview there for a show that's on about Hawksmoor now at the Royal Academy, I said, no, this person can't come into a, a Hawksmoor church. Not, not the church, just the grounds. And the final straw was not being allowed into Hackney Libraries. Um, and that was not altogether a hard thing to take because it generated a kind of interest in this activity. And I'll finish by just writing this account of what happened there. As soon as I put the phone down and still in shock, I knew that my Hackney book would benefit from a deluge of council-inspired publicity. The librarian deputed to give me the bad news kept insisting it wasn't her fault. There was nothing she could do. It was orders from above. My first reaction was pure relief, because this was one less promotional outing to prepare and more time to write. I took it as a tribute after all this time to be thought worthy of being invited to leave the premises. It's a very tough act to get yourself banned these days, and I pulled it off three months before my book was even published. So sorry, your launch is off, you dissed the Olympics. Kim Wright, the Corporate Director of Community Services, a woman charged with, with improving the quality of life for all, small job, ordered the library to withdraw my invitation. Just down the road in the council offices, a wall of surveillance screens in a secure basement was monitoring the renegade comings and goings of the citizens of Hackney, with some of the funding for this Orwellian system coming straight out of library funds and the rest from council tax. 
The next minute, I was on the Today programme with John Humphreys. By that evening, I'd done two television interviews and fielded many calls from broadsheets. I chatted with an instantly concerned Vanessa Phelps. <laughs> it took a happy citizen, an independent free sheet, to get the truth of this affair. Using the Freedom of Information Act, they uncovered a series of emails exposing the pronouncements of the council as misinformation or blatant lies. The ban was directly to do with the Olympics and nothing else. And the decision to implement it, whatever the cost, came from Jules Pipe, the mayor of Hackney. Two journalists uncovered an email dated the 24th of September 2008 from Polly Rance, the head of media. It is clear we cannot allow this event to go ahead. I discussed it with the mayor and his direction was clear. He feels, as I do, we should not host an event on council premises promoting a book which has an overtly controversial misspelled and political, <laughs> albeit non-party agenda and promotes an opinion which contradicts our aims and values as an organisation, in this case, the 2012 Games and Legacy. If pushed, we can explain that we do not want it to appear the Council in any way condoning or endorsing the content of Sinclair's book. I've discussed the PR ramifications of this with Jules Pike. He's very comfortable with this approach, and it's a position he feels comfortable defending. The wise ones of Hackney convened a meeting for book launch risk analysis. <laughs> the novel, as yet unread and months from publication, is guilty, with no right of reply being political, but somehow outside politics. The Council's own decisions to rip down terraces, vandalise Victorian theatres, construct 52-storey blocks, are not political. These are strategic and taken without full public consultation, but with numerous forms on offer. Travellers are invited to keep travelling. It's gratifying that despite the manifold problems facing a sprawling metropolitan borough with all its cultural diversity, poverty and crime, our councillors can make time for a debate on the tactical implications of cancelling a reading in a Stoke Newington library. <laughs> A man called Rob McKinley contacted me to say he'd recently surveyed Hackney councillors for their views on the supernatural. Well, this struck me as a very useful angle of approach. <laughs> Matthew Coggins, conservative, recalled a house in Stoke Newington where temperature and smell changed dramatically and unexpectedly. Just a curiosity, he said. Michael Desmond, Labour, turned on a tap. Rickety plumbing gushed with words as well as water. Get away from here. Get away from here. <laughs> the phenomenon convinced him not to become an accountant. <laughs> Ian Scherer lived dead, admitted to being open to views on these things. Jewish books he had studied warned, if you could see what was standing right next to you, you would die of fright. <laughs> Misha Boris of the Green Party was convinced that ghosts was some kind of blip in the time continuum. <laughs> Michael Levy, Conservative Chief Whip, had enough on his plate without having to delve into the unknown. <laughs> Meg Hillier, late on maternity leave, was excused an opinion. <laughs> Diane Abbott, Labour, left it to her researcher to discover that unfortunately she had no comment to make. <laughs> Jules Pipe, Labour, stated, I'm happy to confirm I've never felt the need to attribute any event to supernatural causes. <coughs> While I accept that people are entitled to hold whatever beliefs they like, 
as long as it causes no harm to others, this is a subject to which I would ascribe no significance, nor would I wish it to see be taken any more seriously than it already is. Stepping outside for a breath of air, I met a neighbour at the garden gate. An ambulance has been stoned on Mare Street, she said. Why, I asked. Why not? There are 149 kids out there denied secondary school places, and there are plenty of others roaming about on the loose. Some people moan about barbecue trays scorching the grass on London fields, but others are dodging bullets. There have been so many police raids lately that they are calling it concerted harassment. It is going to kick off very soon. Mark my words. Hackney will be just like Brixton and Topstead in the 80s. That was one year exactly before the riots happened. Alan, the, I didn't come across Alan's work firstly in written form at all. I think possibly the low point of 80s pop music might well have been Transvision Bank. But we have kind of heard this album. There's a song called Hanging Out with Halo Jones. And from that moment, um, that's when I kind of came across you, and that's what kind of first of all attracted me to your work. Nothing to do with Ben James or Transvision Bank at all. Um, Alan's career, I don't need to tell you, has gone from kind of strength to strength. His work with um, DC comic, Comics, first of all, with Hannah Jones, V for Vendetta, and a whole range of Batman and Superman, with the legal extraordinary gentleman from Hell, Watchmen, the uh, adaptation of his work for film, the adoption of his works, um, as Ian also mentioned, as symbols of the Occupy movement across the world. He's rightly known as the best graphic novel writer in history. More than that, he is uh, a cultural critic, uh, a complainer, um, a provoker, and someone who's so focused on the personal, the local, something he shares with Ian in his work, that you know that what he writes about and when he talks about is something that he genuinely knows about. His work covers an enormous range of material, the interest in resistance in the individual, the anti-fascist, the anarchist, the unquenchably human, the difficultly human, difficultly isn't even a word, but the difficultly human um, is there all the time. I'm really very delighted to introduce Alan Moore. Yeah, no, I haven't got anything anywhere near as relevant as Ian's piece upon grand projects, but um, there's, there's a few connections. One of the first walks that I went on with Ian, which I'm probably one of the last because it nearly crippled me. Um, uh, I'd advise you never to do it. It's a wonderful experience, but you probably might survive. Uh, we, we walked all the way from Hackney um, out to Mortlake, which was the home of Dr. John Dee, who was Queen Elizabeth's uh, advisor, astrologer, court magician, and he was probably the man behind the biggest grand project of all, in that it was John Dee who apparently uh, went in to uh, talk to Queen Elizabeth and said, um, your, your Majesty, I've, I've, I've figured out that there's this obscure myth 
that a Prince Madoc had sailed from Wales with a crew of Celts and Druids and had gone to the New World. And he said, well, I don't know if this is true or not, but it strikes me that I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> uh, it strikes me, Your Majesty, that um, based upon this myth, we might be able to claim that England actually owns the New World. And I suppose you could do this with quite a lot of places, really, and then I suppose you'd have what you might call a British Empire. <laughs> and it was him who first used the words. Uh, it was him who came up with the concept. And um, he was uh, an unusual person. Um, he spent the uh, final um, years, well, probably the last few decades of his life, uh, talking to entities which he had to refer to as angels, because if he called them anything else, then he would have been set on fire. Um, now, uh, I've been interested in Deke for a long time. Uh, he strikes me as probably the person who invented modern England. I mean, his books alone, the books in his library which survived the mob, probably provides um, the basis for most modern thought. And this is not even the guy, this is just his library. He had the single surviving editions of all of these key works. Um, now, uh, a couple of years ago, I was approached by a popular music ensemble who um, <laughs> invited me to do an opera about um, superheroes and I told them that I would rather blind myself with my thumbs than <laughs> do any such thing. And they said, oh well they really want to work with you, you know, maybe you could do something about like magic. And, and then because I had a failing of mine, I just I just wanted to show off and show what I knew. So I said, well, I suppose if you're going to do something about magic, then it'd be best, if you're talking about doing an opera, it'd be best to do something about alchemy. And um, because actually opera, modern opera, sprang out of alchemy. Uh, Monteverdi was an alchemist. He kind of came up with opera um, purely to express alchemical ideas. Um, and I said, and if you're the Manchester International Festival, which they were, um, <laughs> of course I wouldn't have said it, would I? <laughs> uh, I said, then you could probably do no worse than um, to actually focus upon John Dee, who was an alchemist, who uh, was actually exiled to Manchester, and uh, basically laid out and developed most of modern Manchester. Um, anyway, the, uh, the collaboration with the, um, the pop group concerned, uh, it didn't really go very far for, for technical reasons. Um, <laughs> technically, they were dicks. <laughs> but, uh, okay. there are, this is a, this is a surviving scene, and, uh, this is the opening scene where it was intended to be John Dee 
1605, which was the end of his life. Uh, he'd returned to Mortlake to find it ransacked. He'd lost all of his family except the one daughter um, to plague while he was in Manchester. So him and his daughter had returned home uh, and she looked after him in Mortlake until the end. Uh, this was the inspiration for, I mean, John Dee, he inspired Christopher Marlowe's Faust. He was the direct inspiration for Ben Johnson's The Alchemist. And uh, Shakespeare's Prospero. Um, the story of uh, Prospero on his island, attended only by his spirits and his daughter, was pretty much the story of John Dee. Uh, only he wasn't on an island, he was in Warwick. So. Betrayed now by a whisper, now a cough. 
What are you? Lapsed, infernal or divine, suspended in our sooty firmament, who watches stumble through our clumsy lines and offer neither jeers nor yet applause? What are you? And what bloodless realm is thine? Are all our strivings and adulteries but the diversion of a phantom horde that shifts impatient in its cirrus chairs, consults its playbills while men live or die and only stares? What are you? In the book that Enoch writ are powers that loveth earthly things too well, thrown down from grace until eternity, cast out by the Almighty. Is it thee? Are our beloved mortal fields your hell? Or be ye spirits of futurity, born only of a frantic, flailing mind, desperate to know he left something behind. Imagining a world that's yet to be where all of his asylum speculations are proved true. I hope I am still God's man. What are you? But, but see how he converses with himself and wonders but folk think him ill of mine. I rave and weep and gaze into my stone, and I entreat the seraphs and the thrones for counsel on the blood that's in my stool. With their reply ambiguous, with their reply ambiguous, when they reply at all. I hear my daughter in another room and am undone to think she pities me. <coughs> I would to her be limbed in blinded suns. I would my garment were the boundless sky, and in her gaze reflected, know that I was all my centuries light. I was John Dee. I was not ever this rain-sodden sketch with half my lines erased, <coughs> my colours run. Nor always did I navigate a path no further than the sorry chamber pot. Rather, I measured oceans with my stride, and numbers told to me their secret names. I drew the circles, and I spoke the words that half our reeking globe is stood upon. Yet men shall rake my grave smooth when I'm gone, and then to the uncomprehending flame, to the perusal of illiterate fires, consign my library. I was a fellow of the school of night, and when Kit Marlowe wrote of Faust, he wrote of me. In my jet mirror is the future now all clouds with nothing there to read, nothing to scribe. My present is pared down to these stark walls that are my last horizons, are my final skies, and yet so close, so near. So shabby where the lining paper sags, in place of constellations and cracks. Below, within my penitentiary flesh, a great dismantling proceeds unchecked. My vistas and my panoramas are unfolded nowhere, save in memory.
Both my tomorrows and todays are done. The unrecoverable past is all my pasture now, my only liberty. When I was jack of angels, and the heavens were alight. When I was known by men, and by those more than men. When I was young, when I stared down the florid monster of Bohemia in his den. For in my glass I bested worse, far worse than he. When I was young, I was the pivot of the world. I was John Day. I think on that note, we're actually going to have the intermission now to let that sink in. Um, and so, both of you, thank you so much. We'll be back here just before 25 to 9. The bells will ring. Please enjoy the bar and have a look at the books out there. And ladies and gentlemen, Ian and Alan. Welcome back, everybody. Um, and uh, the second part of the evening is about discussion and questions. I'm going to start with a couple of questions, but very quickly, um, I think we're going to take a lot of your questions. I know that there are a lot. You might need to have some of that house lights down a little bit so you can see the audience, so that that's possible in the box. Um, but we all, as soon as you can, in fact, we can see you emerging now from the, from the strange halo of my glasses. Um, I want to start with talking about tonight's main theme, this notion of protest. Um, I think that you both write in, in ways that have been allied to all sorts of different forms of protest. I know, um, again, Robert Farland described Ghost Milk as weaponized walking, which is a fabulous kind of, produces fabulous images of you sort of kind of armed with words patrolling the, the boundaries of the Olympic behemoth. And the reason. Well, yes, the reason and logic in, in some sense. But also when you talk about when talk about D and, um, and the process of his exile in, in Manchester, his one of the things that um, he was known for again was this dissenting view, this kind of his own following his own logic, despite the kind of the prevailing views of society. Well, only driven by just I mean, just so sort of just just throwing some anecdote. Mm? But when you're talking about D in Manchester, when I was in Manchester, I was in, invited to a strange iceberg called Urbis, which was a, a, a building statement that had no content, and nobody could work out what it was. So, you know, we were supposed to go in there, and I couldn't really face going there, so I went to the church, the other side of this big square, where there was a, a, a seat that Dee had used, and while I was trying to negotiate my way around this seat to, to find the place where Dee had been when he was head of Manchester Grammar School in his exile, a strange figure was kind of shadowing in behind me. I knew we were in real trouble. It was like he had one half of his face caved in. And he, and he came up to me and he said, Can you remember the seven deadly sins? And it was a good start. And I kind of worked my way through about five of them and I stuck. You know, I think we, 
We didn't get to pry until like, I was walking down the Dean's Gate to Waterstone's bookshop. And I was looking in the window of one of my own books that had just come out. And for you, is it, a, is it an angry impulse behind the, the wish to protest, or is it a, a <coughs> philosophical, political? I think it's kind of more inevitable than, than angry. I mean, like, uh, even in, I mean, the, the place that I come from, I mean, Northampton, it's only real export apart from some incredible mental cases. <coughs> <laughs> is, um, it's troublemakers. I mean, like most of the uh, the Civil War um, kicked off and concluded around Northampton. We were, uh, I think, we provided all of the boots for Oliver Cromwell, um, and I don't think he ever paid us. <laughs> and um, so, and, and there were people like uh, Charles Bradwell, who was the first atheist MP. Um, it took uh, three or four years after he was elected to get him into the Houses of Parliament because he, the, the Tory MPs were saying, well, he can't possibly swear on the Bible because he's an atheist, so we're not going to let him in. And there were riots in Northampton where they sent out armed police to put them down. It's, it's kind of a tradition um, in Northampton that... Uh, when things pass a certain point, then the heads just go up on poles. Um, you know, we've not quite got to that stage with the current banking crisis, but I'll give it a few more months. Northampton <laughs> has this street that was sort of like alchemised as a goldsmith street. And there's also that great sense of not only export, but import. Because you've imported lunacy. You don't need it, but you've got it. <laughs> it's almost tautologous, but you've, you've, you've imported John Clare, you import Lucia Joyce, both of whom we've mentioned. And this adds so much to the town that it becomes a centre for this sort of damaged discourse. You, you know, you've tapped into it brilliantly. And um, beyond that, there's, there's the figure of Beckett, I can't get over, you know, who comes there to play cricket. And then, goes out for some strange reason on a walk around all the churches where he comes to that wonderful church where William Smith, the geologist, on his drift across England, following the limestone causeway, gets to Northampton and conveniently drops dead. On the causeway. <laughs> and there is this memorial in there. So, so Northampton is about importing as well as exporting. Yeah. Errol Flint. And, and I think that it's sort of, I mean, Northampton did used to be... Um, a much more well thought of town. Uh, I, I believe this is a, a chance for me to show some of my local knowledge that uh, there is a place in um, Norwich called Thorpe, um, which is it's one of the only two places, the original name I assume would have been Kingsthorpe. And there are only two Kingsthorpes in the entire of the country one's in Northampton, one's in Norwich. This was where I think King Offa um, he had his country retreats. And the towns of Northampton and Norwich were presumably market towns to supply these sort of country retreats. And so you, you get this sense of, in the past, it was a, a very pleasant, quite an important town. I think that uh, Alfred the Great 
um, had named it as foremost amongst the shires back in the 800s. Potentially the third university. <coughs> That's right, it's not going to be, if we hadn't have offended, I think Henry III, um, he was going to put a university at Northampton, but um, the baccalaureate in Northampton, the students, and a lot of the rebel barons were getting pretty sick of the way that uh, the money was all being creamed off by the council that Henry put in charge of the town. So they were holding protests. And uh, back in those days, the authorities were a little bit more robust in their response to such things. And he sent the army in uh, through a, a hole in the town wall. The, it was a, a French priory. Uh, Clumiac Priory, who, being French, sympathised with the royalty. So they burnt the town to the ground and um, ransacked it, sort of uh, looted it. Um, and I think we've been on some kind of shit list ever since. <laughs> and it only got worse with the gunpowder plot and the Civil War. Uh, we're, we're never going to be in anybody's good books. <laughs> So there's, there's no reason not to protest in my It sounds a bit kind of a bit more closure than a, than a long range acoustic device just burning the whole thing. Yeah, well, I'm uh, a thorough. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it kind of brings me on to this notion of place that you also both share a very, very clear sense of belonging to a particular place. And is, is the place, are the places that you write about invested with these spirits, or do you? you bring them to the people that you write about, the stories that you write, do they bring the spirit with them? Uh, you, move, you, move through, you move through a landscape and it, it acts like a series of radar beacons that as over a period of time you, you get into a kind of seance with place and you, you pick up on the, the palimpsest of stories and narratives that are already there and you kick them in. This is why you know, I'm, I'm so disturbed with the sudden enclosure of a particular part of territory nearby is that we, we can only establish our own identity and our own sense of what we are in the world by the memories of the particular structures that are around us. Once upon a time, looking at London, if you look at those scenographic views of London, it was a series of churches. The, the, the church in London was marked out by churches. You were, you were fined if you didn't attend a particular neighborhood church. At the time I moved into Hackney in the 1960s, it would have been defined equally by the pubs. Each, each corner had its own particular pub. Fifty yards would put you into a different territory. Well, now you've got territory fought over by postcode gangs, the E8 against the E3 or whatever, and, and shoes are hung, trains are hung over wires that, that represent a kind of a street where you, if you cross, you're into something else. Those arguments about territory and how important <coughs> it is because of the ways you know yourself. So, so it's alarming mentally that suddenly a a whole tranche of stuff that's known and that's on the margin that allows you to have a, a non-imposed <coughs> narrative and therefore to create your own imagination is gone. Suddenly there's a blue enclosed fence around it, too high to see into. And, and people who try and take images of this are arrested and gone. That's deeply disturbing. That's, that's the really disturbing thing. And it's the same disturbance that, that the poet John Clare, who ended up in Northampton, felt when his own village, which was a, a kind of landscaping new internet, is, is closed up to him. The agricultural enclosures come, 
And common ground is now belongs to a series of the peasantry who feel they can, can rise and can, can come from being just general workers to, to being tenant farmers to go up the chain until you get to the top. And the whole landscape is owned by two, two landlords, one Whig and one Tory. And, and the rest is owned by lots of colleges, Cambridge colleges. Spooky stuff. Well, Claire's kind of fracture happens with that, and it's genetically part of him anyway, in that particular landscape. On the edge of the fens, where there's the, the mysterious, misty, drowned world on one side, and then the end of the limestone causeway on the other side, the Jurassic is reaching there. And you, you're hovering between the two worlds, and to then be taken to London and have to play yourself in a way that you know, Alan does so brilliantly. It's a very difficult thing. And he's obviously hovering on the edges of St. Andrews <laughs> by doing it. Because you're either able to do it with the double life of the intense interior experience of your writing and the external world of having to manipulate your own celebrity and what people think you are. That gives you a landscape. And it's perhaps the cost of being of having those narratives, that sense of certainty and knowledge, is that the insanity, is that kind of the madness that you see in Duke of Vendetta and that's kind of, kind of taken away from, from Vendetta or whether it's Claire. Mm. Is that the price you have to pay? Does that put you outside? Well, I suppose that if you're going to, I mean, the whole of society and things like sanity uh, and madness, these are all constructs. Um, so if you're pitching your tent outside the regular boundaries of what is considered normal society, um, you are going to be pretty much automatically seen as mad. Because that's a pretty much a working definition of madness, isn't it? That if you don't want to buy your share of souvenirs, if you don't want to participate in the, the culture that's around you. I mean, one of the things I would say is that um, this, this psychogeography business, um, yes, it is partly you reading the, the information that's already embedded in the landscape, but you are also um, you're inevitably playing a part yourself. I mean, the uh, anecdote that Ian opened with about being up in Manchester, uh, there was a bit that he missed out, which was, um, yeah, he'd gone into the, uh, the cathedral, there was um, this guy with half of his face smashed in, covered in blood, who was lurching towards Ian, at which point Ian's <laughs> wife, Anna, uh, decided that she, there and then, was going to go shopping. <laughs> and as she walked out past Ian, she said, words to the effect of, you draw them like flies. <laughs> <laughs> so it's difficult, you, you, you are part of the landscape. You are affecting it in some ways, it's a feedback. Well, I think it's what, you know, I think this is what we probably both do. I was reading something yesterday that a, a poet who operates as out to lunch or, or as Ben Watson and he sort of punk SWP poet and he wrote a, he's written a book recently about Blake's Cambridge 
And in this book, he mentions a particular character, I won't give him a name, who came from Birmingham and who had a job as a, a railwayman, a signalman in Birmingham, but who also had a, a fondness for all kinds of strange chemicals. And when he turned up for a poetry reading in Spitalfields, where a book called Conductors of Chaos was being launched, he was wondering, I think, anybody got anything? I'll take it. Whatever you've got, I'll take it. And, and I said, what's your job? He said, well, I'm going back to operate the signals outside Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> and Ben Watson mentions in this book, there's a very strange thing, that when he approached me, that my tactic was immediately to put him into a novel. I just grabbed him and he became a character. When he approached the, the, the Cambridge poet, uh, Jeremy Prynne, he told him to piss off. <laughs> so I think you know, this, this is, this is a, the tactic, what you do. When you see this kind of a derangement, I, I do have a sense of relishing and uh, thinking, well, that's, you know, that, that, is an en that is an energy. You yeah. use it, you yeah. put it in. You, uh, they're there, they're there, they're talking to you. you they, they want their audition and they want to be, <laughs> they want to be a part of it. I'm sure you do the same. Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of... Uh, I don't know, I tend to get it after the fact. Um, I have had people, it, the, uh, the reading that uh, uh, Ian and Brian Catman came to do in Northampton at the, um, uh, the Round Church that we have there, I kind of set it up um, and it was quite a spectacular night. We had this uh, a local um, violent psychopathically violent junkie um, halfway through Brian Catlin's reading of the stumbling block he complained that he couldn't understand it <laughs> and uh, then went on understandably went on a rampage um, <laughs> at one point pulling out a gun uh, I was a bit embarrassed at first before I realised that Ian and Brian were absolutely loving it. <laughs> this, was, this was like comedy gold. And um, uh, the, the thing was, the same guy approached me in the street and uh, he'd just read, this must have been sometime before that event, and he came up to me and uh, he said, he just read Watchmen. And he said, Alan, Alan. Because he got a very squeaky voice, although he was quite big. And he said, Alan, I've just read Watchmen. I am Rorschach. <laughs> um, I, that, as a conversational opener, <laughs> sort of, um, it, it's not really going anywhere. <laughs> On that, on that note, I, I was about to open the floor to questions. I'm slightly concerned with what might happen now. But it's got me guns, which I have to take Apart from that, I think it's time to start taking your questions. I'm going to start front and centre. And if uh, we don't have a rolling mic tonight, but if you want to shout out a question, I'll check back and make sure that it's understood. Okay, um, you talked about protest and you talked about Manchester. Uh, Manchester gave us the Chartists, who um, massively influenced uh, or changed the world and their descendants did create institutions and structures that persist today. Um, contrast that with the protest movements of the modern era, uh, what we call the counterculture in the post-war era. Would you not agree that compared to the Chartists, the counterculture has achieved precious little? That your um, Occupy protesters continue 
to make a, the signal-to-noise ratio isn't very high with the Occupy protesters. Uh, the Italian government recently fell. It wasn't due to the, the Occupy movement, it was down to the bond markets. And yeah. compared, to, and neoliberalism runs rampant. Um, and what I'm saying is, is that the likes of the ratings agencies have a billion times more power than anyone in a V for Vendetta mask. I'd probably agree with that. Do you why are we so rubbish at protesting in comparison to the kind of the original chartist and other movements when there are massive kind of financial bodies that are actually having more power than yes. anyone protesting on the streets? I think I would, I'd, obviously I'd agree with that. I mean, like the, uh, the Occupy movement and um, the Anonymous movement, uh, these are relatively recent um, movements of people. Uh, I think from my limited amount of contact with them, I mean, I just wrote the story that's got the mask in. It's, um, but I've got a certain amount of sympathy in that they are actually, no, they're not doing what the Chartists do. Uh, they're not uh, doing what a lot of the great <coughs> radicals in English history have done. Uh, these are different times. And I think that these are probably ordinary middle class people <coughs> in the majority who are probably feeling their way into protest for perhaps the first time. Um, I get the impression that it's all very ad hoc, which is to some degree admirable, um, in that uh, they tend to make their decisions just by kind of ad hoc committees as they go along. Um, they obviously, they, they existed at St Paul's until the authorities moved them on. Um, Anonymous uh, has done some interesting work uh, actually exposing and um, various sort of uh, governments and companies and their wrongdoing. But um, again, this is a sort of, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, I mean, I recently heard that uh, there'd been some abortion clinics targeted by people who were at least claiming to be part of Anonymous. That is kind of a problem with calling yourself Anonymous, isn't it? It's sort of that anybody can be Anonymous. So they've got to sort that out uh, because that is, that's quite dangerous. That could undermine anything that they could possibly achieve in the future. I personally do not agree with um, violent revolution, which I should imagine that an awful lot of the people in Anonymous and Occupy would probably feel along the same lines. This of course makes it quite difficult to actually achieve what the radicals of the past achieved who were prepared to countenance violence. Whether they ultimately achieved their aims is of course um, you know, we're still in this situation now, even with all of the great radicals of the past. So, I don't know. It seems to me that what they're trying to do is to find a form of radicalism that works 
in today's media saturated age um, in, in an increasingly virtual age uh, they're finding their feet I hope that they last long enough to actually evolve to a point where they can be more effective what I would say is that even if they don't there are presumably um, people out there watching them closely and who will hopefully um, come up with an improved model. Um, this is a process, I think, rather than a group with an agenda. So, how, how do we militar, How do we fight against bureaucratic violence if we don't take that violence ourselves? Is there a um, we've got to <coughs> up our level of awareness. And what about our looking at the details of things. I mean, for example, there's been an enormous um, privatisation of public space which has happened. When you, when you talk about the occupied people, that's in Paul's Cathedral. There's a kind of media presentation of this. There is this strange amorphous mob appears wearing these vendetta masks and Alan Bennett comes down and, still, and signs some books and then next in five minutes. And, and a lot of clergy resign and it's all kinds of media dramas. But in reality, if you had done that, the camp was really shoehorned to the edge. There's no, there's no blockage and people wanted to go into the cathedral, which cost you quite a lot of money to do, incidentally. But because right alongside it, Paternoster Square, which is where they wanted to protest, once public space is, is denied to them. This is completely sealed off. And ironically, the, the gate that lends you into it is Christopher Wren's Temple Bar, which was one of the great energy gates for the city, which was in once upon a time in Fleet Street. It was demolished and taken out to, to Waltham Abbey by a brewer to put in his garden as a kind of interesting folly. Um, that garden then becomes part of the Tesco's leisure park. Still a great thing, I mean, but when I was walking around the N25 and going through this sort of scrubwood and suddenly coming across Temple Bar, was a, was a pretty amazing wonder of London. And it related to the kind of energy passage of, of the N25 uh, and that particular moment in politics which saw in 1986, was it, the um, abolition of the GLC, local government, the creation of Big Bang in the financial markets at the same time and the opening of the M25 to turn London into a traffic island. So you knock down Christopher Wren's Temple Bar and you move it to Paternoster Square. So it's now been horribly misaligned, but conveniently able to be closed off with private security guards. So none of the protesters get into this square. And the square is a kind of legacy heritage buoyess. There's a thing in there that's a copy of the monument. Whereas the monument is, is actually on the spot where the Great Fire of London started. It can only be on that spot. So what do you want a pastiche of it in the square? What do you want a couple of sheep by Elizabeth Fring that represent the freedoms of the city in a sealed off square that nobody can go into? So I mean, concept of protest is about actually recognising the story that's on the edge of the story. Uncovering those layers. Uncovering, looking at it. You know, Go to Bazalgette's sewage pumping station and see why what was once the northern sewage outfall is now the Green Way. And the Green Way has now been sealed off until the end of September. <clears throat> and a guy who had been persuaded to open up a cafe there selling quite nice coffee uh, 
to view space suddenly finds that he's being chucked out and he can't go back till the end of September because they're only allowed to sell McDonald's. You know, these are the realities, these are the kind of things that, that inform protest. But what I have seen emerge in this whole process is a different energy to protest that hasn't been there since the 60s. You know, that people are actually occupying buildings. People are, are taking on whole warehouse blocks. <coughs> they're, they're actually doing stuff. They're producing um, material that, that they haven't done in a way for 30 or 40 years. The, 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 the force of the thing is such, it's not on the level of the charters because they, they don't have that kind of organization. Mm. I mean, it's much more haphazard. It's as, as Alan said, it's in a virtual world. Yeah. And so we, we need to trust our own experiences rather than the virtual digitally composed images that are being offered to us all the time. Which is another layer on top of that. Well, well, exactly. Just on a small point regarding uh, Joseph Pizzoglio. Uh, who, as I said, he um, came up with a system that uh, pumped all of London's sewage uh, out of the city. Um, he was, I think, the great-grandfather of Peter Bazalgek, who is the head of Endemol, which is the company that makes Big Brother. <laughs> so, no names there. <laughs> <laughs> that can 
make their alliance with this sort of activity. And the public intellectuals have been pretty remiss in, in dealing with this. And I think because they you know that the economics of the thing is such that uh, their bread is too comfortably buttered in other places. And, and within within the universities, you know, there are endless discussions on the implications <coughs> and the comparisons with Barcelona and London and whatever. But there's not really much that's dramatically um, protesting or, or, or even looking hard at what is there. Well, it strikes me that most of the intellectuals and academics seem to have been co-opted by the process. They, they, some of them presumably still think that if they don't make a fuss, they will perhaps be rewarded at some point in the future. Um, I can remember the, uh, it, it's not the same point, but uh, say Colin Wilson who was uh, one of the angry young men in the 50s, a very promising young writer. Um, He actually, when Stephen Knight first brought out his book, uh, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, which I based a great deal of From Hell, the basic storyline, Colin Wilson was originally full of praise for it. He said, yeah, this is definitely what happened. Yeah, this is absolutely true. Every word of it, I accept it. The next time you see any comment from Colin Lawson about that book, he's saying, well, of course, I realised from the very start that this was a hoax. Um, Yeah, I knew all along that this was just a, a fairy story. And you think, well, that's not the impression you gave in your previous blurbs. Um, Apparently what had happened was that some, uh, Ian told me this, was that uh, somewhere during the process um, Colin Wilson had been invited to lunch at the afternoon or somewhere by a peer of the realm who had explained to him that if you continue to associate that noble name with these sordid little crimes, then certain doors will remain closed to you forever and you will never receive your caddy. And um, obviously, uh, Colin Wilson, angry young man of the 50s, um, he was worried about getting his caddy, which he never did anyway. I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I think that the, the urge, I mean, like the, 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 the Brit artists, um, they are the establishment. They are a function of the way society works. They cannot speak out against anything. I mean, really, you have to be people who have already completely screwed yourselves (laughs) in terms of getting any public acceptance. It's... um, we have a great degree of freedom, uh, which I don't think a lot of academics and intellectuals, they still feel that they've got a stake in the society that is, um, is, around, is around them. And I don't think that me and Ian feel that we've got uh, a particular stake in it. So we can more or less say what we want and we just get like, 
banned from Hackney or schools <laughs> like that. But it's yes, it it would give a lot of clout. All right, it's only academics, it's only intellectuals, but those to some degree provide a lot of the backbone in the public discourse. And yes, it is distressing to see so many of them remaining silent at this time. Um, yeah, I agree. We have uh, unfortunately time for one more question. Um, I was looking around, does anyone have? Yes, halfway. <coughs> Linking back to some of the earlier points that we made about you know, the government trying to remake, in essence, the geography of the Olympic side in terms of some of the stuff that's come up in Promethea, for example, about you know, language being the only way we engage with things. And I'm wondering, in terms of what seem to be quite concerted efforts to sort of, you know, monopolise the, the creation and the ownership of meaning, where or how do you see sort of, you know, the, the spaces and the activities to create those alternative meanings Kind of challenge the, the dominant discourse? Well, I think you know, um, it's to, to be extreme and absurd and also to be accurate, to, to, keep, to keep a very specific account of what's going on and to report it, but also to think in a, in a more extraordinary way, like, like the, there are filmmakers who've been making films in this geography whereby they cast that landscape in terms of some kind of situationist spaghetti western or they have a vision of a female pirate and, and London as a drowned city or in, in my own case uh, with, with filmmaker Andrew Cotting we, we decided to take a swan pedalow from Hastings on the south coast and pedal it through all the back rivers of Kent into the Thames and then arrive at the Olympic site with this thing as a kind of absurd anti-marathon pilgrimage. <laughs> and what was interesting about that was that as it went along the river, you saw this sort of secret hidden England that you wouldn't have known if you weren't going along peddling a swamp. <laughs> <laughs> Which was that there were people living in the woods who were between the river and the railway and maybe kept a few chickens or rabbits and raided supermarkets out sort of bins outside supermarkets at night and combined these two worlds and said to this guy, how do you manage to live? And he said, well, well, we, we, I go into the big supermarket down the road by the roundabout and I, I, when I sneak in there, I, I try and click off the switch by the deep freeze and when it starts to melt, I'm outside by the bin. <laughs> <laughs> how long can I live on ice cream? <laughs> and all these and there was a guy called Spider, who, who Alan actually was, was part of this project, as he comes along with Stuart Lee in, into uh, Tunbridge and gets on the swan and they, they have a wonderful dialogue. And when we left them behind and gone on pedaling, the next, a guy called Spider emerged and he said he'd lived for 20 years just between Tunbridge and Maidstone, never gone anywhere else on a narrowboat. And every sort of six months, a different partner, and all the names of the children were tattooed up one side and down the other. <laughs> and he attached himself to us. He saw this thing as a, some kind of strange visionary journey. And you get up to the edge of the Isle of Dogs, and there's a whole fleet there of these boats that have been bought up that are, that are sort of to, can be scrapped. And they're, they're a harbour full of strange light ships and weird craft, uh, like something out of Lovecraft. 
and people are living on them because they don't want to be part of that system. They, they form their own community. They don't have to pay council tax. They're so off the record. But they formed a kind of complete utopian community. And all of this is available. This other England becomes visible by paddling the swan. And the shock of actually getting into the River Lee and seeing that now the most toxic, the most polluted river in England is visibly so. And it's combined with all kinds of boastful logos of language start to appear, improving the image of construction, you know, digging a hole in the ground, the better life, for you. all this kind of crap is coming at you. And the river itself is just a mess of, of green duckweed and plastic bottles and contamination. You can see it seeding. And the swan finally clumps against the yellow barriers that stop you going into the Olympic side. And the helicopters are overhead, and they're going, get that swan away from you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, kind of the most absurd ways of approaching also throw up all of the, all of the kind of salient facts become, become a drama. And, and the film will, will be kind of around from, from July, I think it's opening in the, in the Renoir and Bloomsbury. So in a sense, that's what you do. And it, it, it gathers together voices from a whole tranche of England that are part of it of an England that doesn't register. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the thing. I think that in order to open up spaces where this kind of discourse can happen, you have to keep your eye upon the margins. Um, I mean, you, you either do something like Ian and Andrew's ridiculous project, which is, is great because Nobody was watching out for that. <laughs> um, you know, nobody expected that. They never expected the swan peddler. <laughs> and so with, with a lot of, of my work and I think Ian's work, we are deliberately looking for the, the marginal, the neglected areas which are not intellectually defended. They are easy prey to some degree. I mean, my, I, when I originally started work um, in the, the superhero genre, which was a ridiculous, crappy genre for kids. Um, so nobody was watching the superhero genre, and that allowed me to sort of go in and do some stuff. Um, um, magic. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm interested in magic is because it's clearly ridiculous. Nobody believes in that, do they? So nobody's paying attention to it. It's a space that is unprote unprotected, where you can actually move in and start to open up a kind of discourse. I mean, when I did uh, Lost Girls, pornography, that's another area which is despised, so it hasn't got a fence around it. There are no guard dogs. Um, it's, it's not a bad way to actually approach culture. The, it's the bits of wasteland in the culture where you can actually start to develop something that is perhaps a bit more interesting and a bit more vital. So those are the kind of cultural areas which I'd say are the ones that people should be, be looking towards. Yeah, I think to loop it back to people like the Chartists and before that the levellers of the English Civil War, someone like Patrick Keeler 
takes this thing of a sort of steady stare and, 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 and voicing his own um, polemic narrative around it and his ironies is able to tap into that England of, of, of protest uh, combined with, with a hard look at the England of the global finances, what's happening with the dot, what's happening with industry, the collapse of industry, the journey around England in the footsteps of Daniel Defoe. There are still people who are recognising the strengths we had, the old models, and are make, making new works out of that, to the point where uh, Robinson and Ruins, the kind of final elegy of the whole Keelery project, is now in the Tate. But one of the, one of the sort of superb ironies or difficulties of this project is that that becomes a deeply a, <coughs> a critique of BP and, and oil pipelines and so on, whereas it has to deal with the fact that the whole culture of the Tate Gallery is actually financed by BP in the first place. So even your protest is so difficult to make because of the structures that are around it. Um, so the world is complicated, more complicated than we can realise. But I think the thing we, we, we both very strongly feel is that you recognise those verities in the past and you honour them and you respect them and you open up also to pathways into the future. So perhaps we have to be you have to be absurd, extreme, uh, accurate, watchful, watchful, watchful. We have to do it. <laughs> we have to do it in some some in plain sight where no one is looking, yeah. and we have to do it creatively and preferably on a swamp shed. Yeah. Things like that. We get our revenge. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both very much for this evening. It's been really fantastic to welcome you both to Norwich. Um, I can only uh, thank you both again for coming to let everybody know that books are being sold outside and both authors will be signing books and no doubt talking to you outside. Um, we've had a fantastic evening tonight. We've got three stunning poets from Afghanistan coming into Norwich on Saturday. Uh, we have also Caroline Duffy coming next week and later in June we have John Ketsey and Anna Funda and Michael Ondarche and Jeanette Winterson and Joe Shapcott and some really interesting American, Australian, Chinese, and Singaporean writers. And I do hope you'll come and join us in some of those. But tonight, Alan Moore and Sinclair, I'd like to thank you both. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Writers' Centre Norwich. You can find out more about the organisation at writerscentrenorwich.org.uk and more podcasts like this one can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes.